So I'm here with Jens. Many of you may have watched recently on Netflix Till Murder Do Us Part. And oh my goodness, me and Jen sat there and our minds were absolutely blown. The twists and turns in this show, which was of course dramatized for the purpose of getting virality. But this is no joke when people's lives are on the line. And as we know, you know, I've written the book Unmaking a Murderer, 10 Ways Prosecutors Set Up innocent people, many of whom end up on death row, people have actually been convicted over this junk science. So it's great that Jens has come on to reveal what the show left out, to take us through his journey, and to talk about his mission and where he is today. So huge thank you for joining us, Jens. Oh my goodness, I cannot believe what you've been through. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm grateful that you've given me this opportunity. Um, yeah. Um, um, thank you. All right, just to recap then for the viewers who perhaps may have not have seen this, how many years did you end up serving? Uh, 33 and a half years, 12,262 days. I was arrested at 19 and I was released at 53. I spent, I think, seven years more than Nelson Mandela in prison and I was in prison for six years more than the Berlin Wall stood. <laughs> and which wow and which prison system was this i spent three years and eight months in british prisons uh, fighting extradition um, my case was the one that changed international law uh, it wasn't me who did this my lawyers did this but i was the guy sitting in prison behind it until my case people were being sent back from europe to the united states and everywhere else to be executed and my my case changed that uh, from then onwards, you could not extradite people if they faced execution at the other end. So after three years and eight months in British prisons, I was then sent to America, convicted wrongfully, and spent uh, three more decades in prison there until I was released on December 17th, 2019. So it's been almost exactly four years that I've now been living in Germany, my home country. Wow. How old were you when you went in? 19. And 53 when I got out. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I'm still smiling. That's one of the things I noticed. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I know that sounds strange. And, and you know, but the fact is, um, you know, I, I work as a coach now in Germany. Um, I deal, I help people who want to develop mental strength and resilience. And um, much of my work is based on Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish psychiatrist who was, in three years in concentration camps, and he wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. And one of the things he talked about in that book, which was very important to me in prison, was that you need a direction, a sense, a meaning for your life. It's what uses the Greek word logos, right? And if you have a mission in life, you can survive almost anything. And I had a mission in life throughout my time in prison, and it gave me the strength to keep fighting, to survive in prison, and to fight my way out. So, you know, I can deal with my past by applying the principles of resilience. And um, that's what I work with my clients now as a coach. And all of Jens's links are in the description box below this video on the YouTube version, including his YouTube channel. So please support his work. So I'm a huge fan of Viktor Frankl, and we, we can get to the philosophy later on. People sure. at this stage, I imagine, if they've not seen the show, are wondering... How the hell did this nice, polite, well-spoken gentleman end up serving 33 plus years? And this is where we bring in a woman called Elizabeth Haysom. So how did you meet Elizabeth Haysom? I met her on the first day of college. and I was at the University of Virginia. I won an academic scholarship there. I was a nerd. <laughs> and um, she was two years older than the rest of us. She had run away from, she had gone to school in Britain. She had attended a British boarding school called Wickham Abbey. And she had run away with her girlfriend and tramped around Europe and, you know, finally gotten caught. And that's why she was older and she had all these interesting stories to tell. And after three or four months at UVA, University of Virginia, um, she declared her undying love for me, which shocked me because I had looked up to her 
as a kind of a mentor. Um, and then we had a relationship. And after three and a half months of the beginning of our relationship, her parents were murdered in a terrible fashion. And um, six months later, we went on the run together. And another six months after that, uh, we were arrested in London, England on April 30th, 1986. And then uh, we, I fought extradition. She did not, because I faced the death penalty. She did not face the death penalty. She went back to Virginia um, and pleaded guilty to being the instigator, accessory before the fact. And then after they removed the threat of the death penalty, I came to Virginia as well, was extradited in 1990, and I was wrongfully convicted of uh, committing the murder, uh, the double murder of her parents, which was right. wrong. We're, and, we're gonna, and I spent, we're, and I spent we're, 30 years fight, fighting my way out. So that's the, right. that's, the, that's the basic plot line there. Okay, we're going to get to that in much more detail. Let's go. I want to go back to Elizabeth then. So had you been madly in love with anyone before Elizabeth? No. I was, um, you know, you might have heard this phenomenon. I think it was Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang Theory, right? Um, I wasn't quite that extreme, and of course, it's a comedic character, right? But I'm in. I was in that direction. You know, it's, it's this phenomenon of high IQ and low EQ, right? Um, I was very, very smart, and I was very, very immature. Very few social skills. Never had a girlfriend before, and she rocked my world. And, uh, you know, she was extremely experienced in every way. And, yeah, so um, I am sure now, looking back, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, um, that she basically chose me as somebody who would be easy to manipulate. And she picked right. I was, I was really gullible as an 18-year-old for the first time in love. And who isn't gullible first time in love? I don't know, you know, you know, you look a little bit younger than me, Sean, but, uh, you know, you, you, you were young once too. And what was it like for you with your you know, very first partner, right? Um, totally, probably... totally immature, totally emotionally immature and vulnerable. Yeah, I think everybody is that, you know, with the first time they fall in love. And my, it was my bad luck that uh, my very first relationship with it was somebody who was very seriously disturbed and that's not just me saying it three psychiatrists later diagnosed her with this particularly severe case of borderline personality disorder so you know there's there's reason for me to say that yeah and we saw the letters the exchange of letters where she even described herself as lady macbeth uh there's an intensity in those letters between the two of you yeah. Do you do you think that she did, even though she was manipulating you, do you think that she did genuinely love you or do you think that she didn't have the capacity for love? Well, uh, those are two separate issues. And my opinion is, no, she did not have the capacity for love. If the, if the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder is correct, and I have some questions about that, I think she actually had antisocial personality disorder. Um, but even if borderline personality disorder is correct, people with borderline very often are not able to really love somebody else because that's what borderline personality is all about. It's an attachment disorder. They cannot form stable and deep relationships. That's what borderline is all about. And so I know, even from a medical perspective, a psychiatric perspective, I do not believe she was able to love me. Apart from that, 30 years into my prison sentence, in 2014, um, my lawyer received a bunch of letters and diaries that she, Elizabeth, had um, written back in those days when we were at college. And it turns out she was cheating on me from the very get-go. <laughs> um, you know, she wrote me a letter in December of 1984 in which she said, I've always hated men and I've used men uh, to manipulate them, but you, yes, you're the first man I could ever really love because you see me, Elizabeth, as the girl with a sun in her eyes instead of a moon between her legs. So romantic, right? Mm -hmm. Two weeks later, she was on a skiing holiday in uh, Yugoslavia back then, it was called, and she had a foursome with three other men. 
And I, we found this out through these letters that we got 30 years later, you know, uh, in her own handwriting, um, you know, with her and this other, with Jody, they call him in America, the guy that, you know, your girlfriend or your wife is cheating with, they call him Jody in America. Um, that was not this guy's name. It's a you know vernacular expression. So, yeah, she was. She never loved me at all. She was cheating on me with another man from the very beginning. There's nothing to it on her side. I was deeply in love. She never loved me. Not one little bit. Not ever. <laughs> wow, that's that's terrible. Yeah. So Jens, you know, we've interviewed over a thousand people on my channel. Primarily people who've been in prison. I've interviewed yeah. serial killers, uh, murderers, mafia hitmen, and a commonality is that people who commit crime, the root cause, the primary root cause we have discerned is childhood trauma. Now, yes. once something was said in the documentary about her mother sleeping with her, I, I even before that had come up, I said to my partner, I said, if she was tested as a child by her parents, I bet she did it and then all of a sudden in the documentary it said that her mother had slept with her and that she'd reveal that to you in the letters uh, can you expand on that a bit perhaps yes uh, first one small step backwards right i completely agree uh, with your statement about prisoners um i actually invested some time into this you know while i was in prison i wrote and published six books about, among other things, on criminological suspect, subjects, right? And for my own interest, I asked everybody, every prisoner that I ever got to know a little bit, you know, and it's hard to get to know people in prison, but every prisoner that I got to know a little bit, I asked specifically, were you physically or sexually abused as a child? And I never met a single prisoner, not one, who was not physically or sexually abused as a child. Not a single one in 33 years. Now, I didn't ask everybody, but all the ones that I did ask said that, okay? Now, with Elizabeth specifically, she told me that she had been abused by her mother, and the police, after the crime, found nude photographs of her in the house, and her mother's best friend, Annie Massey, testified at Elizabeth's trial that, yes, Elizabeth's mother had taken these nude photographs of her own daughter and shown them around to her friends, okay? And uh, this was dismissed at my trial as being unimportant, and Elizabeth on the stand denied that she had been abused, okay? And then 26 years after my trial, in 2016, she gave a newspaper interview in which she said that she, Elizabeth, lied at my trial, committed perjury, that in fact her mother had sex her for eight years with the knowledge of her father and um yeah so that's that's the state of play right now i do not know whether her mother and with the knowledge of her father actually did use her it's what she told me and it's what she confirmed 2016 in a newspaper interview and in my opinion that would explain the overkill at the crime scene because these poor people were absolutely butchered and that indicates a very deep personal hatred which i had no reason for because i had met them precisely one time about two months earlier for 30 to 45 minutes so i had no there's the whole emotional force wasn't there why would i hate them that much if you've been abused you've got that hatred in you and um yeah so that that i think that's pretty strong psychological indicator that in fact you know what i'm saying is true that i i am i absolutely concur with you jens uh, when i saw the wounds that was pure hatred and then yes. when i found out about what the mother had done it, yes. it pretty much it pretty much confirmed it to me the trajectory of yes. how, how the monster had been created and then how the monster just you know surfaced and, and and done um these murders so in in the run-up well, I'd, like, I'd, like I'd, like I'd like to throw in there right um i don't think 
that that's what made Elizabeth. I mean, I don't like the term monster. I'm not here to defend Elizabeth Hayden or her actions, okay? But I think that is on a human perspective, understandable, not for not excusable, right? But I don't like the term monster. Not for that, right? Letting an innocent man serve 30 years in prison for something that you yourself did, which she also did, you know? She never got charged with that crime, but she could have told the truth at my trial. She decided not to. She decided to cut a deal with a prosecutor, and she let me spend 30 years in prison for something I didn't do. And you can call her a monster for that, Sean, okay? So call, go ahead and call her a monster for that. <laughs> um, well, yeah, the, for that. I mean, that was uh, included in... Um, the general my, monster thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, evil. She's, her yeah. behavior was, it was thoroughly yes. evil. Yeah. And I'm just curious then, in the run-up to the murders, what were your lifestyles like? College students, just regular college students. And, um, you know, for me, it was my first great love. For her, obviously not, but she pretended to be in love. And, you know, we were just studying, <laughs> you know, going to college and doing stuff. So, um, yeah, um, there, you know, I don't know, if you, if, you know, if you've watched movies, you know, about American college life, it was just like that. And were you aware that she was taking any illegal substances or anything like that? She claimed she was, okay. Um, and I didn't know any better at that time. Um, so, you know, I believed her. Um, and she, I also believed her when she said that she had stopped, right? But since I, then I went to prison later and I found out that you cannot just take and, you know, that, that, that you could notice when somebody takes him and you withdraws from him. So once I saw real drug addicts in prison, it occurred to me that these stories she had told me about being a addict were probably not true. She probably, I mean, I'm sure she smoked, okay? She had a drug dealer at college um, who may have played some tangential role in the crime, but um, I, I, I don't think when I knew her that she actually ever did more than speed. But that's just a guess, and the problem is Elizabeth was diagnosed with pathological Lyme. So who the heck knows? <laughs> who the heck knows what statement of her at what time is actually true? All right, so explain the movie ticket purchase. Um, during the... Okay, here we come into an area which is difficult for me under German law, and this is mentioned in the Netflix series, right? Um, at my trial, I testified that Elizabeth committed the crime. And I described what happened in the night, right? Under German law, that's in America, while I was in the United States, absolute freedom of speech under the First Amendment. In Germany, I do not have absolute freedom of speech. We have a basic law in, in Germany, that's what it's called. It's like a constitution. And it limits your freedom of speech because of the so-called personality rights of the people you're talking about. So my lawyers in Germany tell me I could basically tell the same story I told in court and it interviews in America. But I would then be technically violating German law. And I've made a decision for myself. I want to be a law-abiding citizen of my own country. So even though my lawyers say they could let get me out of it, right, I would like to obey the law in Germany and not violate Elizabeth's personality rights. Not because I care about her personality rights, but because I care about obeying the law, right? So um, I have to be careful when I talk about the night of the crime, because that's where I can get in trouble, theoretically, with German law. Uh, on the night of the crime, I was in Washington, D.C., and I went to movies. And the key movie is the second movie. It's called Stranger Than Paradise. You might have even seen it because it came, became a kind of a cult classic by Jim Jarmusch. Okay. Um, Elizabeth said that she was at the theater at four o'clock in the afternoon, but did not buy any tickets, right? The tickets existed. They were in my college room. She did not know that, right? So the tickets existed. They were in my college room, and they were not for four o'clock. They were for 10.15. And after my trial, my attorney, another subject we can get into, my attorney found the manager of the theater. This was now six years after the night of the crime. 
and the manager of the theater, the tickets had serial numbers on them. And he was able to tell from the serial numbers and his own records from that night. He actually found the records of, those, uh, of that night that those movie tickets must have been bought between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. for the 10, 15 p.m. show. So I have an absolute alibi with those tickets. The tickets were in my dorm room. I have the tickets and my testimony matches the movie tickets. Elizabeth's testimony does not match the movie tickets and they were not found in her dorm room. Wow, that's good to hear. And then well, the prosecution never got into court. It never got into court, right? Because um, I was never able to introduce any of this. You know this as somebody with experience in the legal system. Appeals are not for new evidence. Appeals are only for procedural errors, right? The incorrect jury instructions, some mistake during the trial, but procedural, right? And then you can have uh, something called habeas corpus, which are constitutional violations. Again, not about new evidence. In some US states, you could introduce new evidence after your conviction to prove your innocence by taking it to the circuit court where you were convicted, right? So when you hear in newspapers or see on TV that some poor guy in America got out after 40 years in prison because of new evidence, he's in a state that allows that, where you can bring the new evidence back to the circuit court where you were originally convicted 40 years ago, right? Virginia, you cannot do that. Virginia's got something called the 21-day rule. 21 days after your sentencing, the circuit court loses jurisdiction. And that jurisdiction doesn't go anywhere. You simply cannot ever bring new evidence into court in Virginia, ever. It sounds insane. And they know about this. And the Washington Post, which is you know one of the major newspapers in the United States, every few years tries to start a campaign to get Virginia to get rid of the 21-day rule, right? Because it's so obviously unfair, but Virginia is not going to change that. Mm -hmm. So this evidence within movie tickets was discovered more than 21 days after my sentencing. I was never able to bring that into court. Um, so never, no judge has ever looked at it. You know, it's just... It's nice to know. Doesn't help me one damn thing. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, That's terrible. so corrupt. All right. So the the other things that they used to convict you was the presence of type O blood, a bloody sock print, and your original confessions. Yeah. Which yes. we learned were based on you trying to do the right thing, it, as a man madly in love to save his partner. Yeah, and of course, the mistaken belief that I would be uh, subjected to much less severe punishment uh, because my father was a German diplomat. We were living in the United States because my father was a German diplomat. And, you know, full diplomatic immunity doesn't exist anymore. But what I assumed was that my father's status would lead to me being sent to Germany and going in front of a German court and getting a juvenile sentence. Right, because in Germany, if you're 21 and under, you're going to go get a juvenile sentence. So I was expecting to get maximum 10 years in a German juvenile prison, which is basically a holiday camp. Hmm. And I thought 10 years in a German juvenile prison is worth saving the woman I loved from execution in the electric chair. Because if you kill more than one person, you're going to get executed in Virginia. Right. And so... If you think about it, if, if, the, if the only thing threat, you know, only threat was that she would go to prison, I might have, I expect I would have said, well, you know, I'll visit you every, every weekend or something. But that wasn't the threat. The threat was they were going to execute her in the electric chair. And I thought the only way to save her life was by taking the rap for her and spending 10 years in a juvenile prison in Germany. That's not the way it worked out. My father had always worked at embassies before that, and he had always worked at embassies after that. But at the time this happened, he worked at the consulate general. And it turns out that if you're a consular official, right, you're protected, but your family isn't. That's a little fine thing in the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations that I did not know. And back then, there was no internet. This, we're talking about 1985, right? There was no internet. The internet didn't, wasn't started until 1991. 
So I simply didn't know that I did not have protection through my father's status. So I was, I was, I kept my promise. I gave this false confession, but I was not protected as I thought I was. And then it took, you know, over the following decades, there was research done which shows that false confessions are actually the second leading cause of wrongful convictions. They happen all the time, much more often than people think. False confessions are, yeah, it's almost commonplace. And then there's a researcher in England um, who found out that for teenagers, and I was 19, the leading reason to give a false confession is to protect somebody else. So actually, you know, my case on that weird level was pretty typical, right? I was trying to protect somebody else just like any other teenager who gives a false confession. And um, yeah, that, that, that was the main piece of evidence against me. Then there was typo blood. That, is, that was my type. And 45% um, of the population have that type. But, you know, I confessed, right? And I have the right blood type, which was found at the crime scene. 19 years after my trial, they tested the blood from the crime scene. And it turns out that the type O blood at the crime scene, which is my blood group, has a different DNA profile. And this is not something that has to do with experts or anything else. Page three of the DNA report from the Virginia Department of Forensic Sciences says at the top, Jens Zuring is excluded as a contributor from 2FE and 6FE. Those are the two type O blood samples. So, you know, that was too late. It was 19 years after my trial, um, you know, and, it, you know, so just shit out of luck, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, the other thing is the sock print, which at my trial, they did basically what they did in the Netflix series. They made it look like mine, when in fact that is junk science. There's no statistical basis for it. And there were three expert affidavits that the Netflix people have, right? I gave it to them, showing that these experts says this sock print could just as easily have been left by Elizabeth one of her half brothers or anybody else with that approximate size foot and five toes, okay? And these other experts did not get put into the next series. They just used that one woman who claimed that she can magically discern that I probably left that sock print, even though my foot is half an inch too long, right? The, the, the top of the sock print looks like my footprint. But my foot is actually, and this is, again, an expert from the Department of Forensic Sciences saying that the sock print was size five to six, and I had size eight and a half. That's about half an inch difference. I should have been excluded, but, you know, they used that at the trial against me because, you know, the top of this sock print looks like my footprint, and I got convicted because of that. And it's junk science, and they could never get that into court today, but back in 1990, they were able to get it into court and it cost me 30 years of my life. And it's cost some people the death penalty. And just to point out some parallels for the viewers here, may think some of these things are implausible. Our first podcast guest, Jamie Morgan Kane, he came home one day, corpse in his living room. His wife was in a conspiracy to poison this guy with another woman, and she was up for the death penalty. And Jamie had nothing to do with it. They said, look, you're the man. If you take the fall, we'll just give you 12 years, and we'll let her free. So he did. He, he stepped up to protect her, like you said. And because of changes in government policy over the years, he served 34 years. Yeah, and then you talk, you know, you're talking about the, the sock print. Um, we had, uh, my lawyer got Ray Crone, the snaggletooth killer off death row. Yeah. He, he, yeah, Alan Simpson. They, they paid expert witness $50,000 to say his teeth matched of bite mark on the victim and they gave him five thousand dollars to defend himself and spent millions putting on the greatest theater show in the world and of course he was found guilty so yeah. these th this is how corrupt and yes. how evil the u.s justice system can be yes. when you've got these things in the hands of psychopathic prosecutors and detectives where it's convict at all cost yeah. um 
when, when you know, her analysis is another one as well. It's, it's equally junk science. Yeah. And they actually have an expert on junk science at the very beginning of episode four. They only show him very briefly. And he is actually, he's got a book on the New York Times bestseller list right now about junk science. And they let him say very briefly at the beginning of the final episode, Socrates of junk science. And then you get the whole episode four. And at the end, they bring in this woman who, put, who actually puts on the junk science that the expert at the beginning of episode four said is junk science. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the, the thing with bite mark analysis is the same thing as with sock print comparisons. You have a soft object, which is the flesh, meeting a hard object, right? And you've got the same thing with a sock print meeting a hard floor. The hard surface deforms the soft tissue, and it's not a reliable print. <laughs> you know, you, you can't do anything with it because you're dealing with two different things, a hard object and a soft object. And in my case, they were comparing a sock print with a footprint, which is apples and oranges, because a sock changes the position of the toes. And again, to get, today you could not get bite mark analysis into court with Ray Crone. And today you could not get sock print analysis into court. But 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they were doing that stuff. And the basic reason for this is um, in the United States, the heads of the police departments, the sheriffs and the prosecutors and in many states, also the judges are all elected officials. So keeping the job demands, you know, delivering to their voters somebody who is guilty. And sometimes it just doesn't matter who is guilty as long as you get somebody convicted of a horrible crime. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's the root cause of the problem in the United States. They're politicians. Jens, you've got a vast understanding of this and you articulate it excellently. But I want to go back to your young mind. You're yeah. in the American justice system. The videos of you, you look very confident. You're taking notes. You've got an aura of, you know, you can see that you believe that you're innocent. You know you're innocent. And you've got some kind of faith in the justice system, perhaps, at that point as you saw these things unfold the the sock print the the blood type when did you start to lose hope or or get you know your idealism was shattered actually i i thought that the jury would see through um the, all of that and i want to say something about that bedford county jury which actually was from nelson county they imported the jury um, there was, after my trial, a newspaper interview where one of the jurors said that actually after a three-week trial, the jury was split 6-6, six, 6-4, six, six, six against, which tells you how weak the evidence was, right? They put on a three-week case, and the jury was split 6-6. Six, six. And then the only reason they convicted me was because of the sock print, right? Which we now know is junk science. So... Again, I mean, they, the jury never got to see that there was a footprint of Elizabeth's that looks like that sock print just as much as mine does, and it's the right length. Mine was the wrong length. Hers looks like the sock print and is the right length. It's not proof that it's her sock print either because it's junk science, but at least hers matches in length. Um, but yeah, I thought the jury would see through all of that. And that's why after they convicted me, there's the scene in the Netflix series where the judge asks me, do I have anything to say? And I'm kind of like snotty and grumpy and say, I'm innocent, right? I, you know, I don't know if you remember that scene. Yeah. I was kind of like outraged. I was, you know, how can you, how can you people be so stupid? I'm innocent, right? What's wrong with you people, right? That was what was going on in my brain. And then I went back, they would, took me back to the jail. Um, and that night I tried to commit. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. The remade Mantor, the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organized crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the mafia's past present 
and future. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's going to be a no-holes-barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session, making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive in-conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers. Because I was just, you know, I'm not accepting this shit. Put a plastic bag over my head and, you know, turns out I was a coward, tore a hole in it, started breathing. And that's when I figured out, um, you know, you're not going to get out of this by killing yourself so you better fight and then i did that for 30 years would, but, you, would you say would you say you were in shock for a few days a few weeks um months? you know for for a while i um i was hopeful that i would you know i was stupid right i was didn't know the system i thought i would win on appeal the judge in my case gave a newspaper interview which was published on the first day of my trial, right? In which the judge said he thought I was guilty. And, you know, I thought that would get me a new trial, right? And, um, you know, it turns out in Virginia, like this 21 day rule I told you about earlier, in Virginia, judges get to decide their own bias. So the judge said, okay, before the trial, I made up my mind the guy's guilty, but I can be fair anyway. And the Court of Appeals just waved that through. They just said, okay, if he says he's fair, that's the law in Virginia. Judges get to decide themselves, right? But I had this hope that the appeals court would help me, which turned out to be misplaced. And then I thought the federal courts would help me because five years after my trial, my trial lawyer, who you saw in the Netflix series, uh, actually lost his license and eventually he got disbarred specifically because of mistakes on my case. And so my lawyer was bad enough to where the bar association takes away his license, right? And I thought in the federal courts, they would grant me a new trial based on ineffective assistance of counsel. Because if the bar association says he can't even be a lawyer anymore, surely the federal courts are going to give me a new trial. And they didn't do that either, right? I, I, it's hard to believe, but, you know, they waved it through. And all of that took 10 years, right? And during that time, I was fighting it in, in the courts with great lawyers helping me, but that gave me hope. And then, you know, the final appeal was turned down. And uh, that's when I started writing books, right? Uh, about meditation. My first book was about meditation, but then I started writing a bunch of books about the criminal justice system and specifically the prison system, criticizing it, not just on my own behalf, but on everybody's behalf. And, um, you know, that gave me a reason to live. And uh, because I felt I was, you know, able to show the world through my books what's wrong with the system. And that gained me a lot of attention and I was grateful for that because those people then, um, you know, supported my release. And after another 10 years passed, now I'm 20 years in, or actually 23 years in, uh, a governor back then actually ordered my release and transferred to Germany. But that was only four days before his end of his term. And then a week later, his successor, a Republican governor, stopped it all again, right? And I had to do another 10 years after that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, what can you say? It's a crazy ass system over there. Um, <laughs> what can you say? So right. that's what I spent my time doing. Okay, I'm just going to continue going through this article here and get your comments on it. So yeah. we left off with the um, 
the type of sample. Um, in 2009, the state ordered DNA testing, eliminated you in the typo sample. You thought that was ironclad evidence towards your claims that you weren't there. Quote, the only way to call any of this into question is to say these samples have been mixed or contaminated. It doesn't mean anything. And then forensic experts suggested that more than one person's DNA might have been combined in those samples, which would skew the results. So how does that come about? Okay, well, you know, I think it's reasonable. It's reasonable to check whether DNA results might have been skewed through mixing or contamination. But last summer, the summer of 2022, the DNA scientist who's in the Netflix series went back to the DNA lab. And for the first time, and the only time, this is the only case they did this, the forensic lab let him look at the raw data of the DNA test that were conducted in 2009, right? This has not been done in any other case. And there was a member of the forensic the, the, the forensic lab there with this DNA scientist. And he was able to determine that these blood samples that matter, there's four of them in the case, right? And he was able to determine that these four samples are not mixed or contaminated. So that removes the doubt. You know, it's reasonable to call things into question, right? But it, this result from 2022 removes the doubt from those test results. They are reliable. And this information was given to Netflix, and they did not put it into their series. And this DNA scientist is pretty pissed off about that because it's it's big, right? It's big. Um, it's, it's fair to check. You need to check results. He did check the results, right? And we now know for sure there was no mixture and no contamination. And Netflix left it out of the series. Makes you wonder why. Why would Netflix leave out important facts? I wonder. <laughs> so you know, if I'm, there I'm was... Mad about it. I laugh about it now. I laugh about it, but I'm actually really angry about it. Because, you know, there is there are two explanations for the type O blood. And it doesn't really matter to me which one of them is true. But there is also male AB blood. So at a dead minimum, at a dead minimum, you have one unknown perpetrator at the crime scene who is male and has AB blood and a different DNA profile from mine, different blood group and a different DNA profile. So, you know, this should matter. And it was left out of the Netflix series. And that's wrong. And uh, yeah, I've now filed a new petition for a pardon with the governor of Virginia on August 4th, based on this scientist's new research, new, new, new testing. And we'll see where that goes. I don't have great hopes, but we'll see where it goes. It's amazing to me that the Netflix people did not take this into their series. I'm, I'm, I'm really disappointed about that. And so is the scientist. So Jens, do you theorize that this unknown male contributor could perhaps have been one of the assailants? Sure, absolutely. Why else would there be that blood at the crime scene? Yeah. Um, in knife homicides, it's very common for the perpetrators to injure themselves. So yeah, if you've got blood at the crime scene, that, you know, Nancy Hasten, one of the victims, the female victim, had AB blood. So she had XX chromosomes as a woman, but there's AB blood with XY chromosomes at the crime scene. Cannot be Nancy Hasem's blood, right? Has to be a male, XY chromosomes, but Nancy Hasem's blood group. This should matter. This should matter. And you look at the crime scene, obviously there was one more than one perpetrator there. And, um, you know, I'm not one of them. There's nothing of me forensic at the crime scene. No fingerprint. The hair in the sink is not my hair. The shoe prints are too small to be mine. There's none of my DNA there. There's nothing forensic of mine at the crime scene. And the sock print could belong to anybody of that approximate size foot, including Elizabeth and her half-brother. So there's nothing tying me to the crime scene. And there's something called Locard's Principle. Uh, if you're a fan of CSI, right? Every contact leaves a trace. It's not possible to go anywhere and not leave any trace of yourself. 
and I left no trace. And that means I wasn't there. Plus, I've got the movie tickets from Washington, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Looking it's, more it's really cool. Looking more closely at the sock print then, so it was shown to the jury with an overlay of your burr footprint, a print that you provided under court order. One juror later stated the sock print with your footprint overlay was the turning point that led a split jury to a guilty verdict. However, two forensic experts laid out in affidavits how comparing a burr footprint to a sock print is junk science for several reasons and shouldn't have been admitted. And you said you also gave that to the producers of the show, uh, but Plus, they, distort, they distorted it. Yeah. Plus a third affidavit from the state forensic lab, which says that the sock print could have been left by Julian Hasem, one of Elizabeth's half-brothers. Julian Hasem is completely innocent, right? But it shows that it could be left by anybody, right? You know, Julian Hasem is completely innocent, but his foot matches the sock print. Same thing applies to me, folks. It's not science, right? And they had all three of these affidavits. Didn't use them. Didn't use them. And I think it's because they wanted a surprise ending to their series, right? Um, because it's all about getting clicks, all about making it exciting for the viewers. And in order to get those clicks, in order to make it exciting for the viewers, they distorted the truth, in my opinion. They left out key facts. And, you know, they obviously didn't care if they were going to make me look guilty and to, to achieve their end. To, to make money with my life. You know, I did spend 33 years in prison and I did not murder these people. And, you know, I did not get paid for my interview by Netflix because I had been promised by these people that they would tell this story truthfully and fairly. And there are things that speak against me. I gave a confession. I say it's false. There are mistakes in that confession, but I did give a confession. So there are things that speak against me, but there are things that speak for me as well, such as these footprint affidavits from these experts, such as the DNA tests, and the stuff that, they, that speaks for me, they left out of the series. That's wrong. That's wrong. You know, I went through hell for 33 years. How could they do that to me? You know, because they want to earn money? You know. Screw them. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> screw them. <laughs> you know, they're pathetic people. They're pathetic people. Jens, why do you think her own brother, in a heartfelt statement, accused her of being present when the murders happened? Do you think he knew something, or that was just instinct? I think it's just instinct. But fact is, and this is, check it out. It's on my website. I'm going to give it to you. You can use it, right? She confessed. Elizabeth confessed to this crime briefly right and the audio tape the netflix people had and they did not put in the series it's on my website you can listen to it and you can use that audio if you want in, in, for this for this broadcast if you want it sean right thank you please she says i did it myself i got off on it and i got off on it is an interesting choice of words when you think about what we were talking about earlier that she had been sexually molested by her mother, right? It's an interesting choice of words. I got off on it, if you look at that context. And also, if you look at the overkill, because whoever committed this crime did get off on it, right? So, um, yeah, that's not in the Netflix series. I think that's relevant. And it's probably one of the reasons why her brother made that statement. Then there's cigarette butts of her brand at the crime scene. The shoe print is much too small to be mine, but it matches her shoe size. There is a one spot of type B blood. That is her type. That, uh, that type B blood could not be DNA tested, so we don't know anything more, but it is her blood type. Um, yeah, so, and she, of course, had a really great motive, you know? <laughs> And her fingerprints are on the um, on the vodka bottle. Now, these are not fingerprints and blood. Nevertheless, that's a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, I forgot something. 
an FBI profiler came to the crime scene directly after the crime and determined that the Hastings had been murdered by a female perpetrator in a close relationship to the victims. Interesting. Not in the Netflix series, right? They were never able to find the actual profile in any of the files, but they found other documents that refer to the profile and summarize the contents. There's a letter from the prosecutor that says that a profile was performed and the result was female perpetrator, close relationship to the victims. And then there's papers in the FBI file that said that the sheriff asked for a profile, a profile was performed, and the profile said female perpetrator, close relationship to the victims. I'm a male perpetrator, if I were one, and I'm not. And I, I didn't know these people. You know, I met them one time for lunch for 30 to 45 minutes. I'm the wrong guy. And that's also not in the Netflix series. But her brother knew all of this, right? He didn't know about the FBI profile, but he knew about the rest of the stuff. And that's why I think he made that statement at her trial that he believed Elizabeth was at the crime scene. Jens, what was that profile conclusion based on? Um, I don't know. The, the, the FBI agent who made it, right, gave an interview for another documentary film, which has now been taken off the market. It was much better. It was called Killing for Love. For many years, it was available on Hulu, right? And the FBI agent who performed the profile said that, uh, he, he did, of course, in the interview only gave a summary, right? He said that Mrs. Hasem was wearing a house coat. And we're talking about 1985, right? And he says that she would not have let in a stranger like me into the house wearing nothing but like a, a house coat. Because, you know, the very conservative part of the state, Virginia is a very conservative state, and Lynchburg is an extremely conservative part of a very conservative state, right? And so a well-bred, upper-class lady like Nancy Hasem would not let a strange man, even though he's only 18, but she would not let a strange man into the house dressed in nothing but a house coat. That indicated that she knew um, um, the, the, the person that she let into the house, like a family member or a close family friend. And then, of course, there are some things about the injuries to the Hastings that suggest a female perpetrator. All stab wounds except for one, were less than one inch deep, right? There was one single stab wound that was deeper than one inch. All the other ones were very superficial and basically survivable, okay? So that suggests somebody who's physically very weak, like a woman, right? So th those are um, indicators of a female perpetrator in a close relationship to a victim. So Jens, was your false confession peppered with facts fed to you by Elizabeth? Yes. Short answer, yes. Right? Um, um, correct. There, you know, I, I knew things about the crime scene that only the killer would know. But that doesn't mean I was there. It just means I talked to the real killer. Right? Um, think about it. You watch the Netflix series, you now know details about the crime scene that only the killer would know because you saw the crime scene photograph, you, you, know, you watched the series, you heard people talk about it. That's how you get knowledge of crimes. You don't have to be there. You just have to speak to somebody who was there, right? And um, correct. The interesting thing about my confession is, is that while it contained a lot of accurate details, it also contained a lot of inaccurate details, which are difficult to explain if, you know, I'm telling the truth. And there's a British police officer called Dr. Andrew Griffiths. He attained the rank of Detective Superintendent Major Crimes and Intelligence in the Sussex Police Force, right? And now he's an international consultant on um, interrogation techniques. He teaches police departments around the world how to interrogate people properly to get them to tell the truth, right? And this man, Dr. Andrew Griffiths, um, spent four months examining all the records of my interrogation for four days in the London police station. I was interrogated in London because we were arrested there. And after the end of four months, he wrote a 21-page report 
which concluded that my confession was not reliable, should not have been used in court, for two reasons, mistakes in the confession, and number two, uh, the police did not follow proper procedure. They violated my rights under the British PACE Act, right, Police and Criminals Evidence Act. That's not my statements. This is the Detective uh, Superintendent Andrew Griffiths, PhD. Who, um, who who said that that's the case, right? So Jens, as she's telling you these things, at what stage did that happen? Was it right after when she came back in the car or was it later on? Okay, here we're getting into that area where I'm running into difficulties with German law about what I can talk about on the night of the crime. Again, my lawyers told me they can get me out of it, but I w I'm a citizen of this country and I want to obey the laws of this country. Um, what I can say is that at my trial, I testified that immediately, as soon as I heard about this, I found out hours later, we sat down together and invented a story together. We planned it out and we based it on Macbeth. Earlier, I mentioned Lady Macbeth. That was our model for what we uh, planned together according to my testimony at my trial. Okay. Um, yeah. Interesting thing you just mentioned, you know, when I came back, according to the, what she testified, right? Uh, it's in the Netflix series that she said, I came back, she opened the car door, and I was draped in a bed sheet. And in her trial testimony, she actually said I was naked, wrapped in a bed sheet that was drenched in blood, right? What they don't tell you in the Netflix series is that they did a luminol test of the car. And both the cops that think I'm innocent and the cop that thinks I'm guilty agree. That's one of the few things they agree on, that the luminol test showed there was absolutely no blood in that car. So that story that Elizabeth told about seeing me in a blood-soaked bedsheet in the car is not the truth, right? Science says it's not the truth. There's a luminol test that was not mentioned in the Netflix series that proves there was no blood in that car. None at all. Story that she told is a lie. But this was part of the stories that we developed after the crime to tell to the police. And they were not the truth. Some people watching this, Jens, I imagine at this stage are thinking that no matter how much in love you are of a person, if that person shows up, and starts to reveal that they've killed their parents, it would create a reaction perhaps opposite to what your reaction was. You yeah. would want to distance yourself from that person. You may even turn them into the cops. Could you explain to those people the psychological process involved in your decision to back her up? Well, this is there's two things to that, right? The first thing is I knew or she had told me, right? She had told me. I, you have to be careful with the statements Elizabeth Hazen makes. But she had told me she had been sexed by a mother with a full consent and cooperation of her father. And she gave given me a bunch of gruesome details about this, right? So I saw her primarily as a victim, right? That doesn't mean I proved what she said, but I felt sorry for her. And, you know, it doesn't make it okay, but it makes it understandable. Right. So that was one thing. And the other thing is, right, she immediately said, according to my trial testimony, I have to say that for legal reasons, um, that she would be executed in the electric chair. She would be fried. That's a horrible death. So on the one hand, I'm feeling compassion for her because she's been sexed, according to her statement. And on the other hand, I have to look at this high likelihood that she will die a horrible death if I call the cops, if I don't protect her, right? And again, if the threat had been she gets a life sentence, I, I expect or I hope that I would have said, you know what, I'll wait for you. I'll visit you every weekend, right? <laughs> but that's not what the situation was in my mind on that night. She was saying, they're going to execute me in the electric chair unless you help me. So, um, 
you know, that that's my mindset on that night. On the one hand, degree of compassion for her because of the sex. And on the other hand, a fear that she would die a horrible death. I don't know whether you know what electrocution and electric chair is like. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've spent some time with this because then they, you know, they were going to execute me. You know, your eyeballs pop out, you bite your tongue off and blood pours down. The hair on your arm starts burning. It's, you know, it's, it's a horrible death. And that's what she faced. And I did not want her to die like that. Yeah, we got a lot of details from a guy called Nick Yaris in a podcast we did with him. And um, I completely understand where you're coming from with that response. I think some people, as you know, horrible as these crimes were, I think some people would say that if she these things did happen to her at the hands of her mother and the father was complicit, some people would say that you know they had it coming because if that's true, then you know these are these are the most uh, evil things you could a, a parent could ever do to a child. Um, so I understand if that was what was related to you, that would definitely trigger those uh, the, the way you acted thereafter. Well, I mean, I, the, the thing is, you know, you have to also keep in mind, right? This was all happening. I was making these decisions at two o'clock in the morning as an 18 year old, okay? <laughs> and that's not an excuse, right? I know I should have sought help. And, you know, I work as a coach now, and one of the seven pillars of resilience is networking, right? And the idea is that when we are in trouble in any way, shape or form, if we're in a stressful situation, we tend to isolate ourselves, right? Because it seems safe, right, to isolate ourselves to withdraw. But in fact, you should reach out to others for help. That's the way forward. No human being can live in isolation. We always need to network and seek help. So that's a mistake I made in that night. I understand that now, but I was 18. I should have reached out. I should have called somebody. I should have called somebody and said, I'm, you know, I'm only 18. I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready to make this decision. Somebody help me, please. I didn't do that. I thought I wanted to play the hero, to be the knight in shining armor, to save the woman I loved. And remember, I'd always been a nerd. I'd always been the uncool kid. Here was an opportunity where I could finally be the cool kid, the hero of the story. And that's a mighty big temptation. And um, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to be her hero. I wanted to, you know, this is why militaries, armies recruit 18 year olds. When you're an 18 year old, right, you want to die for your country. When you're 30 year old, you want to make the other die, other guy die for his country, right? You know, you know what I'm saying? But if you, you know, if you come into the military as an 18 year old recruit, you want to die for your country. And that was kind of the mindset that I had. You know, I wanted to give my life for the great cause. And the great cause for me was protecting the woman I loved. Wow. Well, Jens, I'm convinced you're completely innocent. And I could talk to you for hours. We're already at an hour right now. I would love to get you back uh, to perhaps do a part two where we could go into your prison stories and your great. journey through the system. And also perhaps we could go live and... Um, have the viewers ask you some questions as well, but we have run out of time for this evening. So thank you for your time today. And could you tell the viewers where they can find you and support your work, please? Um, I've got a YouTube channel. Please hook up. Um, I've got my own little podcast, a true crime podcast about my fellow prisoners called Sympathy with the Devil, True Crime from an Insider. And um, yeah, there's another podcast in which a judge looks at all the evidence in this case. You can find it on anywhere you can look, find podcasts. It's called The Jens Zuring Case, A New Verdict. So check those three things out. And uh, yeah, you know, visit me on my YouTube channel. You can find all of that on my YouTube channel in the link tree. Um, there's, yeah, it's an, I'd like to see you there um, if you're interested. Um, and, you know, when I grow up, I want to be like Sean. 
in Germany. <laughs> oh, thank you, man. Wow, still smiling. I want to be like you. So please support Jens. I will put his links in the description box below this video. Please go and subscribe to his channel. And hopefully we will see him back soon. Huge thank you, man. I'd like to be back if you'll have me. If you're looking for a gift, my new book, Sit Downs with Gangsters, is available worldwide on Amazon. We've interviewed over a 1,000 people now, and we selected 10 of the hardest-hitting stories to go in this book. Each chapter features the story of one of our podcast guests. Those stories are Shane Taylor, Knife Maniac's Redemption, John Elite, Mafia Hitman for the Gambino Crime Family, Joey Barnett, 35 years in UK prison, Ian Blink McDonald, £6 million bank robber, Chet Sandu, Asian smuggler in Spanish Supermax, John Lawson, the hit team commander, David Macmillan, international smuggler's tie death row prison escape, John Abbott, San Quentin prison shootout and escape, Michael Francis, Colombo crime family capo portrayed in Goodfellas. And Wildman, English enforcer in Arizona prison. Link in description box on YouTube, available worldwide on Amazon. Also, my next book, Untouchable Jimmy Savile, is getting published in December 2023. So check that out as well. It will be available worldwide on Amazon. Thank you for listening. Cheers.